Hello and welcome to Army of Crime, the world's only podcast. Normally we split time between two topics on this episode, similar to our episode on the comic book series A Walk Through Hell. We're going to go deep on one thing, and that one thing is the 1971 Ken Russell film The Devils. is a movie based on a true story um, and is also then inspired by a nonfiction book by Aldous Huxley called The Devils of Loudon about a in real life in France in the city of Loudon in the Middle Ages there was a convent of nuns who were all said to have been possessed by the devil and there was a priest, a local priest, who was burned at the stake for witchcraft for basically con- corrupting these nuns. So thus we have the movie The Devils, which is based on this real event. And is obviously, there's a lot of in it, um, and I have read the book The Devils of Ludon. So when you're watching the movie The Devils, there's a lot of really bizarre things that happen in it, which are actually real life. Um, which are things that happen in real life. And there's lots of bizarre things that are complete uh, works of fancy. But I think it does get at some a lot of like real uh, issues with uh, Europe and religion and state power. And anyway, all that is to say, Matt, to you, what did you think of the motion picture, The Devils? So going into watching this, I really didn't know what to expect. And I intentionally did not read up a bunch on the actual historical things. I will say I really like the Devils. I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Oh, boy. Yeah, I really like the Devils. I think there's a lot of interesting things happening here from both a story character perspective uh, as well as historical. And it's extremely well directed on a technical level. Yeah, it's it's a very dense film. And yeah, it's a extremely like well done, really well controlled film like the uh just to start it off before we get into like the story but like the production design and the costumes are like stellar just amazing because you know this is an aspect of it which is not necessarily historically accurate but which like um to quote Werner herzog is like the ecstatic truth because i feel like it aids so much in the story that they're telling but the design of it is almost like science fiction in like the way that these buildings are constructed and like the backgrounds and like there's these like uh kind of like checkerboard designs and really bizarre you know like cages that people are being held in and these like bizarre costumes that like people are wearing it's, it's like it almost looks like some sort of like post-apocalyptic rebuilt society or like a weirdo science fiction movie yeah i made the connection while watching it that it reminded me sort of of david lynch's dune which is yeah. a science fiction movie. The nuns in this movie made me think of like the Benny Gesserit from Dune because they really don't look like it looks like what you would imagine nuns looking like, right? But not what they actually look like. And even the walls of Ludon are they look like again, it's like something from science fiction. They're like built up of these giant white, almost like solid marble blocks. I have no idea what the walls of this city actually look like i really feel like they probably didn't look like that yeah it it literally makes it look like this little science fiction fortress or something and yeah there are times where you almost get the feel of like a post-apocalyptic world and considering it takes place in europe in the first half of the 1600s which was a very violent 
and destructive time where there was plague outbreaks and the like. That's probably not an inaccurate way of representing it. Because at the beginning, I believe they directly talk about how the the, the recently ended uh, Protestant Catholic civil wars. Right. And and also, I was going to say a reference point for me it made me think of was, have you ever seen the Fritz Lang uh, silent fantasy epic uh, Die Nibelungen? I'm not sure if I have. I don't. It has uh, Siegfried fighting a dragon, but it also has these extremely interesting sort of like modernist designs inside a fantasy film that are really visually striking, and it kind of made me think of that too. It's like fantasy slash science sci-fi like modernism, but in like a historical setting. It's um, pretty uh, fascinating. It's yeah, it's great. There's all sorts of great images in this. And like there is a part, the images of the nun, Sister Jean, and she's like a hunchback, which apparently was a real thing. She apparently had a spinal injury. So she, she walked like that, like bent over. Yeah. And it, it's just like creepy looking or weird looking, but that historically she did have that kind of injury. And inside the nunnery, they all have these, these white uh, walls. And there's like these little alcoves where you have to like crawl under and the whole things are caged off from the outside. And you can see her like hobbling down these hallways. It, it's like something you would see in a horror movie. But I mean, it's not a horror movie. I've seen them actually stick horror on it as a classification on some things, but it, it's not a horror movie. But the aesthetic that it's going for is almost like a horror movie aesthetic. Well, they talk about how at the beginning she talks about, and we can get into like the story a little bit, but at the beginning she makes the point that most of the nuns who are in there are not actually, and this would be true of priests at the time as well, they're not there because of religious devotion. It was just a place to like or get rid of like basically extra children that you didn't want and like couldn't feed or you know, couldn't, they weren't like going to get married or you would just like give them to, you know, have them become a nun or give them to the seminary so they'd become a priest. So the women who are here, you know, they are kind of like trapped, you know, like rats in a cage, so to speak, because they're, you know, not there necessarily by choice because of, you know, how much they love God. They were just like shuffled off there to get them out of the way. Yeah. And this is also the time period where high-ranking religious officials would, of course, be appointed by the king and would often be cronies or well-connected family members. You could buy your way into bishoprics bishoprics, uh, and other religious titles. So, and I looked this up, Father Grandier apparently did go to religious school, so he is not one of these people. But there would have been those people around who are religious figures or high-ranking religious authorities that are just there as like a political job. Well, to get into that, at the very beginning of the film, the first thing you see is a character who you um, learn is the king of France uh, enacting this like bizarre play where he is like uh, the character of Venus from Greek mythology, which we can get into more. Apparently in real life, there was speculation that the king of France at this time was gay, but in this film, they turn him into some sort of like really flamboyant sociopath, sort of, which I think is a bit of a historical license. But anyway, 
after that, Cardinal Richelieu is there, well known as the bad guy from The Three Musketeers. And he is a perfect example of what you're talking about because he proposes to the king a union of church and state to consolidate their power. And throughout the rest of the film, that's basically, you know, all of the actions that are done are to that aim, to like, you know, to consolidate the power of the church and the power of the state as like a hand in a glove, you know, to crush any dissent. Because then what ends up happening as you get into the film is that Father Grandier is a priest in the city of Loudon, and he's sort of considered a like a spiritual leader, an unofficial leader for the city. And the city has these protective walls that were a remnant of the civil war between Protestants and Catholics that recently ended. And the king of France and the his advisors like Cardinal Richelieu want the city of Loudon to tear down their walls because they're worried that the city, you know, might start to defy the central power of the king. So because of that, the church and the state have teamed up to try and destroy Father Grandier so they can tear down the walls of the city of Loudon. And then the possession of all these nuns by demons ends up being the vehicle through which they attempt to destroy him. This movie does a really great job of illustrating a historical process that plays out over hundreds of years, which is the first the decentralization of political power in Europe under feudalism, where you have a king whose power is dependent on the loyalty of his vassals coming to his call. And then over time, you see the rise of nation states where local power is consolidated into a king. And this is something that played out in France. And you actually see this illustrated very well through this specific incident in this movie, because this is a process that would have played out across many European countries over a long period of time is the loss of regional power to a strong central authority, which would usually be an absolute monarch. Right. So the king and Cardinal Richelieu want to bring Loudon under control of the central power, and the city, of course, does not want to do that. It's also an illustration of the process of fortification building, because in the feudal period, all the cities needed their own defenses. So that's where you would have castles built and city walls built. And then there was a process of going around tearing down city walls where all the old fortifications had to be ripped down, which is another, it's one of those long-term historical processes that I think it's actually very interesting to have a movie based around a specific incidence of it, because that's another thing that would have been happening all over France is them going around telling people they needed to tear down their city walls or their city fortifications to make it harder to defy the central government. And, you know, the other historical process, of course, and this is talked about at some length in the movie, is the rise of Protestantism, which accompanied, this is in the early modern period, and accompanies the wars of religion, which they mention in the movie, yeah. as well as an upsurge in witchcraft trials and, like, witch hunts, also coincides with the rise of Protestantism. So it's really a crisis moment for the nation and the state in a lot of ways, because they're trying to expand the power of the central government. They're trying to enforce some degree of religious orthodoxy. And that's where you see that state church nexus coming together. Right. It actually makes me think of another historical process, which is the Christianization of Europe. And Europe is almost uniformly Christian 
I mean, for hundreds upon hundreds of years before this movie, but takes place. One of the things that it is theorized that a Christian society gives as an advantage to a ruler is that bureaucracy, right? You have the Cardinal Richelieu's on your side then to help you keep everyone in line is one of the advantages of a state organized religion, which again, we see in this movie. That's not specifically what this movie is about, but again, yeah, we see why, why as the king, it would be useful to have a state religion. Right. Cause then the state just become, or the church becomes a separate apparatus through which the state can wield power. And then conversely, the state becomes an apparatus through which the church wields power. Yeah. And you know, the plot of the movie, a lot of interesting things happen in this movie. Uh, and this is a you really can say that again. <laughs> well, I wasn't even thinking of the things that got it banned in like 15 countries. Uh, at the beginning, we see some plague doctors at work. And they're doing some, let's call them medically not well-tested things. Such they're as, like putting bees in someone or something? I can't remember exactly. Yeah, they're like attaching wasps to somebody. Um, they're also having them lay on top of a stuffed crocodile. Yeah. And I'm, I haven't heard the crocodile thing before, but the witch, the plague doctors who were not even real medical doctors, oftentimes it was just a position. It was like a job that you could get. And a lot of times it was because no one else wanted to do it. And they would do all kinds of just like really, I mean, they're just really throwing everything at the wall and see if anything helps because why not? So they would do a lot of really weird things, a lot of things that seem very bizarre. And you actually see them with their plague doctor masks, which have the nose stuffed up. I think one guy has like, little incense matches in like the face part of the of his mask because as i recall they believe at the time that diseases traveled through smells yeah miasma theory which is that disease could be caused by essentially evil smells or evil like vapors so then the giant beak on the plague doctor mask was so that he could put good smelling things in there to protect him from evil smells right right so we see Father Grandier sort of shooing away the plague doctors as being, I mean, he, he knows that they're just up to no good, right? Um, and they would charge a lot of money to people to perform these services, which they were really just kind of making up and, and going with. I don't know about the crocodile. I know there was a plague treatment where you like literally just take a live rooster bird and like tie it to a person. It was supposed hmm. to help transfer the disease from the person to the bird and then okay. when the bird died you could cut it off and, and like throw the throw the bird away i'm not sure about the crocodile but i would believe for 100 percent they would have someone lay on top of like a stuffed crocodile i mean that so, sounds just as plausible as attaching a bird to someone well it's funny too but in this film has this like sort of like father grandier as if you want to talk about him as you said the plague doctors are like treating this woman who's dying and the woman's daughter runs out into the street and grabs the father and is like, you, we need your help. And he shoes away the plague doctors because he under, knows that they're just like, you know, charlatans. And then he, I mean, he doesn't, obviously he doesn't offer her any actual like medical advice, but he just like consoles her as she's like dying. And then he goes out into the street and fights the plague doctors with the crocodile. In, on one sense, he is sort of like a hypocrite because he has sex with all kinds of women and he later like gets married, which are obviously all things which are verboten for a Catholic priest. But on the other hand, he does seem to have some level of like actual spiritual belief and he does like legitimately like uh, comfort this like woman as she's like dying. But then he also is sort of like this like roguish 
swashbuckling figure who is not afraid to like you know get in these like plague doctors faces and try to hit them with their giant stuffed crocodile yeah and we see he has a very odd relationship with his congregants too because when he's doing confession there's like a stream of like ladies who come up to talk to him yeah they just want his attention i I assume because of his extremely amazing mustache he does have uh oliver reed was a uh, pretty good looking man in this movie he is rocking a pretty sweet mustache so basically yeah, he has the attention of all of the local ladies. And whenever he, he, there's a part early in the beginning where he's walking by the convent and all the nuns are like crowding around the windows to like take a look at him because they all think that he's totally, you know, hot to trot. And so this gets into this to the central demonic possession story because basically what you have is mother joan so she is we were talking about how the nuns are often people who are not religious but were just like given over there because they didn't the family didn't have anything else to do with them and i think that's the case for jean because her chief interest i mean her chief like motivation is this like intense uh sexual repression because she's basically to put a long story short is extremely horny and she really wants uh, Father Grandier, as all the ladies do, because he's hot stuff. So she puts in a request to have him become like the the priest for the convent, where he would like hear all of like the nuns' confessions and stuff like that. And he declines this offer because he prefers to be, you know, the priest for the city at large instead. I believe is what happens. And then she. Uh, you know, takes this as an extreme personal slight and gets really upset. And that's where this accusation comes out, where she accuses him of practicing witchcraft. So it basically all comes down to the fact that these nuns are so, like, sexually repressed and sort of oppressed by the, you know, rules of this, like, bureaucratic church that their, like, sexual frustration, like, bubbles over into this accusation of witchcraft against this priest. Yeah, and, well, I mean, I think there's even more to it than that because her motivation seems to shift throughout the movie, and it's well, not Well, at some point, she clear. realizes she, after this thing takes on a life of its own, she tries to repent because she realizes that she's, like, doomed an innocent man to death. And it's not entirely clear that she's accusing him on purpose the first time as it starts. I, I think that she didn't really mean to accuse him formally, but she was just things, upset because things get out of hand and then they come to her and basically want her to name him. And she actually resists at first. Her motivation seems to kind of, um, it's a little slippery. It's hard to, hard to get a, a firm grasp on what her motivation is. But I think you're right in that she is obviously she's attracted to him. She has dreams about him. And from a modern person, we would say that she's having she's perhaps having like intrusive thoughts. And from her perspective, maybe she thinks her intrusive thoughts are caused by the devil. I mean, she has no other frame of reference. Maybe she is having intrusive thoughts and she thinks maybe they're caused by the devil. It's not really clear what her exact motivations are. Uh, Her motivations are that she's really horny. Well, I think that's part of it. She's all horned up. I feel like it's a a somewhat of an oversimplification. I mean, when you see his mustache, you can't blame her. Well, yeah. 
so then the church authorities are like, oh, this is a way in which we can use, uh, you know, what she's giving us, which is sort of like obliquely referencing that he may be like practicing devilry. And we can use that as a reason to destroy this priest and thus, uh, you know, be able to, once he's out of the way, we'll be able to tear down the walls of the city of Ludan because he's like the moral authority for the city that's preventing this from happening. And I believe he himself had assurances like from the king. Yeah. The so king once had promised the previous ruler of the city that the walls would stay up. And that so was... once so once the father is out of the way, then they can like basically renege on that deal and rip the walls down. Yeah. And the Baron is very open about this process. It's interesting to me to see the interplay between the d different kinds of factors that are at play, right? Because you have the nuns who are lo literally locked up. Um, I don't know if they're never allowed to leave or not, but that kind of is the implication that once they're inside their nunnery, they like literally can't go anywhere. And they have their, their urges. They're also uh, all horned up. Yeah. Uh, and then the Baron is the guy who is on a mission to get the walls torn down, who is working for the Cardinal. And he's just kind of like spitballing ideas at one point of how they can get rid of Grandier. And that just sort of comes up and you can tell he's very skeptical of it. Like he really doesn't believe in this. He's like, obviously these, they're just nuns and they're just kind of part of it is I think that there's some degree of them being like attention starved, right? Because now all of a sudden people are showing up and asking them things. Yeah. Um, and then the nuns get in trouble. I thought this was interesting. The nuns get in trouble and they bring in the priest, father Barry, Barry, He's like the exorcist, like witch finder guy. And unlike the Baron, I think he is actually like a, a zealot. I think he really believes in all this stuff. Perhaps. I mean, if he does, it's in like, yeah, in a really absurd, stupid way. But of course, that would be the case. And the nuns are basically given a choice of like, A, did you knowingly break the law? Or B, are you possessed by demons? And if they're possessed by demons, then they're not responsible for the things they did that were technically illegal. So they're just like, yeah, we're totally possessed by demons. And then they just go hog wild. And right. Basically, the, they're, they're about to like execute all the nuns. And they're like, well, wait, what if, in fact, it was Father Grandier who made you do these things through his sorcery? And then perhaps we would let you live so that you could testify against him. And they're like... Yeah, that's what happened. And then, of course, under the guise of that, they're allowed to let out all of their, uh, you know, sexually repressed feelings. And they just, like, can, you know, go wild and strip off their clothes yeah. and tear down the and get, crucifix. And get the movie banned in, in 12 countries. Or right, and do things that get the movie banned all over the world. The absurdity of these witchcraft trials is fascinating to me because it's a thing where if you just, like, explain it to, like, another human being in, like, modern times... They'll just look at you and be like, well, that's obviously completely insane. And yet, like, thousands of people died. Tens of thousands? I mean, they took it very seriously. And we see this in the movie where they want him to confess to his crimes. And it's the same thing that, it, that the, like, political purges of Stalin is to Russia would do, where they would accuse people of all these things that, like, they obviously didn't do, Right. But you would want them to confess to it so you could put it on the piece of paper that, yes, they did finally admit that they did it. So now everything is all good because they like really, really want him to confess. And the way these things normally work, as I understand them, is if you confess, you get to live because then they'll forgive you. So your choices are a admitting 
that the people accusing you are right and you get to live, or B, if you continue to maintain your innocence, then you die. Well, I believe his choices in the film are confess and die quickly, or don't confess and get burned at the stake. It's interesting they also show the strangler, which was a thing, because normally when someone's burned at the stake, you don't actually burn them to death. You're supposed to have the strangler come in and strangle them, which was like a guy's job, right? And he's the town strangler. So, Matt. Yeah. Would you like to talk about the infamous so-called uh, Rape of Christ sequence and all of the uh, everything that's uh, going on in that? Well, it is a sequence. And things happen in it. Uh, this is, I believe, something that you would have to find and stitch together because I, I believe most versions of the movie, correct me if I'm wrong, do not include this sequence. And I'm not 100% sure that you need it for the movie to work. I feel like you get the idea without this in it. Uh, but I, the short version is that this is a sequence where um, a pile of naked nuns are thriving around in a sexual fashion on top of a giant crucifix that they pulled off the wall basically the 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 sexually crazed nuns pull the crucifix off the wall and start uh madly humping it while there's like a priest uh whacking off in the corner yeah um, this is some historical stuff um and yeah this is this thing that got abandoned in like a bajillion countries i feel like the movie works without that sequence if we're being a thousand percent on this but it certainly is a striking sequence well it really goes to show you the, even if that part of it is not historically accurate, like, you know, the wild absurdity, I think, of scenes like that, like, I think actually, I don't know, seem to pair well with the wild, you know, authoritarianism of the, you know, hand-in-glove church-and-state oppression. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I feel like they to... work together well as a whole. And there's a few things about this sequence which I think are really interesting to discuss. One is there's cross-cutting in this sequence between the wild orgy and Father Grandier uh, by himself because he's traveling and they show him to bless the food, the meal that he's going to eat by himself. So they show this character who is by the official you know, church stance is like an evil heretic who has to die. And they show him you know, even though he is a hypocrite in many ways, but they show him expressing like a personal piety and a personal spirituality that's like legitimate. And then you contrast that with the official church authorities basically having an orgy. And then the the king comes in disguised as a duke and is like, here is a box which will surely cure the nuns because it contains a nail from Christ's uh, crucifixion, I believe, is what they say. I think is he that... says it contains some of Christ's blood. Okay, that's what it's. It's some kind of like holy relic. So they take the box, and then the box causes the nun to like stop, you know, wilding up, wilding out. And then the king, like laughing hysterically, opens the box, and it's actually empty. I mean, and we know that the nuns' expressions of, you know, of their crazy behavior is complete is not religiously they're not like possessed by demons they're all just like making it up but i think it's interesting to show that even like the exorcist and all of the official church authorities there instead of this you know obvious like trick showing the fallacy of what they're doing just to the amusement of the king who um really doesn't 
give a crap about any of this. Like, instead of that, like, uh, impugning their weird behavior, it, like, causes them to just, like, ratchet it up and go crazier. Like, it shows how incredibly ridiculous and, you know, non-spiritual and, like, non-religious this whole, like, farce is. It's fascinating to see the process of cognitive dissonance play out in real time. Yeah. Because they literally see their, their belief structure shown to be to be literally empty, like the box. Right, the box is empty, like the whole thing is literally empty. And instead of, you know, right. They just double down. Right, instead of like backing away from it, they just like double down. Yeah. And they're in the position else? of, they're like the official church authorities. So whatever they do will be correct. Yeah, because what else would they do? Admit that their whole life is a lie. Or... Right. Yeah, they're not going to be like, oh, yeah, we were just faking it. Yeah. And that, to me, is the interesting part is when you look at people being possessed by demons or performing exorcisms in these kinds of time periods. The interesting question to me is, is how what did the people doing this understand to be happening? Did the nuns? It's, I mean, I think it's plausible, given human psychology, the nuns became convinced that they had been possessed by demons. Right. And at that point, they're just doing everything. You know, they're just going wild. But maybe they think that, that demons are making them do them. Maybe they think that demons are giving them these urges, right? I don't think it's impossible that they that they still believe they're being possessed. I think it's plausible that the priests, too, are rationalizing it in some way that allows them to keep their belief system. I think human psychology is tricky like that. Just like I think it's plausible that Sister Jean thought that there was witchcraft involved in giving her intrusive thoughts about Father Grandier. Yeah, because, and this is skipping ahead, but there's a part at the end where after Father Grandier has been burned at the stake and the Baron, which, you know, spoiler alert for something that happened like 700 years ago, and the Baron comes to her just like cruelly mocking her and is like, oh, here's a memento for you. It's a bone uh, from his uh, corpse. And she's, she says something about the possession, and then he's just like, oh, no, you're not possessed anymore, and then, like, leaves. And then she, of yeah. course, uses the, the femur bone to masturbate with, as one does when they're a horned-up, sexually possessed nun wrecked with some sort of weird, horny guilt because she got this innocent guy burned at the stake, but she still, you know, is all horned-up, as one would be when forced to be a nun well the she specifically says something like oh we were going to have a public exorcism like she's like looking forward to her next exorcism oh yeah yeah because this is a weird be another reason for everyone to go hog wild yeah and this is an interesting thing actually and reading the book the devils of ludon so they did have these public exorcisms which is so bizarre because in real life and they show this in the film a little bit but in real life they did do this publicly and uh, it basically became like a tourist attraction where people would come to ludon to see oh the crazy possessed nuns and then they would have like a public exorcism ritual where they would like give them holy water enemas which is shown in the film and other sort of bizarre you know insane things that were part of the uh, exorcism rituals and in real life as i recall from the book the exorcism rituals continued after 
Father uh, Grandier was killed. For, uh, again, the cognitive dissonance here, we killed the guy causing the possessions, but the possessions continued. And then I think in real life, like as a tourist attraction, people just gradually like lost interest and then they stopped doing it. Another thing I thought was actually interesting about this movie, um, talking about witch hunts or witchcraft trials, is they, they she says that if you, this was a thing where if you pricked certain parts of a witch's body, it would not bleed. Yes. And there's a part where they like prick his tongue and you can see that it's like obviously bleeding. And then they like write in their little notebooks that it didn't bleed. And you realize that a lot of these sounding absurd ways of investigating things, maybe they weren't really investigating it like that, right? Like, like, oh, if you prick their, you know, in this case, it's his tongue, it could be any part of their body. And if it doesn't bleed, that means that they're a witch. And you're thinking to yourself, well, obviously it would bleed. Why wouldn't it bleed? And the answer is they didn't really prick it at all. Maybe they pricked it and it bled and they're like, eh, it probably should have bled more. Well, you know, or maybe they didn't really even touch it or something. A lot of these, what sound to us like extremely absurd ways of finding out if someone's a witch, and they are absurd, but you have to realize that the people controlling the process are just using it to get the results that they want so they can write it in their evidence. Right, right. Because it's not like there's an opposing, there's not like there's an attorney present or something to make sure the guy getting tied to the rock is being and thrown in the river is being right treated fairly but there's like a due process involved yeah yeah because the whole thing is they already have the foregone conclusion of what they want to do they want to you know kill him or destroy him so which is the only thing that they really want out of him is the confession which would then retroactively you know justify all every all the torture and stuff that they did but he refuses to give it to them well he confesses to to, to sins that he did and um, but he refuses to confess to things that he didn't do. Yeah, he confesses to actual crimes. Well, because the things that he confesses to actually doing are, uh, you know, laying in bed with lots of local beautiful women, including he impregnates the daughter of some, like, noble, which gets him in trouble. And he has shown to be a bit of a womanizer and a Lothario. With, yeah. Like, all these, like, different ladies that are always, like, swooning over him and he'll you know use his position of authority to get them into bed but he then he also does like get married and he is shown to have like a like he has a secret wedding which is obviously uh, you know another huge blasphemy for a priest but you know in the film the secret wedding is actually like a sincere spiritual and like act of love but in the official eyes of the church state bureaucracy it's like a you know, blasphemy punishable by, you know, getting your legs broken by machines. Yeah. Or whatever it is, their leg breaking contraption exactly works. I'm, I think that was one of the parts that was edited because it, it, they actually cut away from one of the tortures and it's not entirely clear what they're doing to him, but they're they're doing something to his legs that makes him incapable like, of walking. Yeah, they're like breaking. I think what they do is they put your legs in these like wooden slots so that they're like stuck and can't move. And then they put wedges in between the leg and the wood and then they pound the wedges so that it like forces your leg like even smaller and like breaks it i think i'm not entirely sure how it works but yes they they torture him by breaking his legs this is the is the long and short of it i think father grandier is ultimately a very interesting anti-hero because as you mentioned he has a lot of negative qualities and at the beginning of the movie i had a very low opinion of him because he's kind of this cad Right. He goes around with local women, and he's obviously abusing his religious authority. Like, this noble man sends his daughter 
to Father Grandier to learn Latin, and then she storms off when she's pregnant, and he has no interest in helping right. her raise this child or whatever. So he seems like a jerk, and at the beginning of the movie, I was kind of ready to write him off, but I think just like the nuns, he is struggling subconsciously against the weird hypocritical society that he's trapped in, because we also see that he has a lot of sincere beliefs, and he does seem to have the best interests of the people of Ludon at heart. Right. And he actually does seem to care about people. Even when he tells this woman, he sends her off and says that he can't be the father to her child. And that is like a weird thing to say, but he does it in, I mean, he could be meaner about it. He tells her to go tell everyone the truth. So he's not trying to keep it a secret. I mean, he's shirking his responsibility to her, obviously, but he tells her to go tell everyone. He, he doesn't tell her to keep it a secret. So I think we have in Father Grandier just this person who's trapped inside this weird hypocritical system. I think if you were to make him just be like a religious priest who is allowed to get married, like a non-Catholic priest in modern times, I think he'd be like a perfectly cool guy. Yeah, I mean, by the end of the film you really like come around to the fact that he is like a, he has sincere spiritual beliefs, unlike these people who are like torturing him, who's, who may also have sincere spiritual beliefs, but they're only seen to manifest in the ways that they can inflict violence upon others. Whereas his sincere spiritual beliefs, he seems to actually like care about, you know, people other than himself at points. And he, um, you know, it, it's like a, yeah, by the end of the film, you really, like, come around on him as being, like, the only, like, quasi-moral or ethical person in the film. And, of course, the irony of the film being that he is the heretic and the official, you know, holy church, you know, people are the ones who are, in fact, doing horribly heinous and evil things, which, you know, in historical basis is not, like, a huge revelation because we all know about these... Um, witchcraft. I mean, we all know that the Catholic Church has done lots of horrible things, so it's not like that's a scalding hot take necessarily, but yeah. I mean, I think in the sum total of what the film is about, you have this, like, absurd Grand Guggenau vision of the, like, absurd tortures of the church-state bureaucracy joined together to crush any opposition. To and, crush this one guy. Like, this one guy has found himself at the nexus point of the autocratic of the interest power uh, state yeah. and and the church as headed by cardinal richelieu so this one dude this one guy for all his other faults is the one person standing in the way and they have to crush him like a bug and everything they do is like you know i guess the point i'm getting at is that like his spirituality is considered blasphemy when in fact we would view it as like actually like moral and ethical and the official spirituality is the one of the people who are like torturing and burning people at the stake. Yeah. And even the sins that he confesses to, which are bad, right? Cause he, right. he does, he, he's abusing his authority and. But his moral failings pale are, in comparison. Yeah. To... He, he, right. Any of his sins are way less. I mean, you could like defrock him maybe and that maybe he deserved that, but he he i would still rather have him in charge let's say than father Berry, who is the chief exorcist who i feel like is a zealot and is really just on a looney tunes wavelength right. 
Um, and then the Baron, who is completely cynical and is just using the process to manipulate and destroy political opponents. So yeah, for all his sins, he is still the best person we have of, as far as the power players in this movie. Obviously, we could say like his wife or some other person is maybe yeah. actually just a good person, but she is powerless. Yeah, and she... They seem to imply that she has been like tortured somewhere, but they don't, you don't really see it that much. Yeah. But she gets, she does live. They release her at the end. And then it's so then at the end of this film, the nuns all go back to normal because they're, you know, don't need, not that they are not possessed anymore because they never were possessed, but the state no longer cares whether or not they're possessed. So they can just like go back to normal. And then they blow up the walls of Ludon and his wife is shown in this like amazing final shot where she walks over the rubble of the walls and then is just like walking out of the city down this long road where you see these uh, Catherine wheels, which and I had to look this up, but they're like these poles. And then on top of the pole, you have a wheel. And apparently they would torture people back in this time by breaking all their arms and legs and then like. Um, stringing them along this wheel or like, uh, you know, conforming them along this wheel and then they would just slowly die up there. So she's like walking down this road, you know, over the destroyed wall and past all these like medieval torture devices out into... Out into the post-apocalyptic dystopia. Dystopian hellscape, yeah, known as medieval Europe. Well, not even medieval. It's the 1600s. This is the early modern period. Oh, yeah, that's true. Which is a thing that people lose track of when we talk about witch hunts. Witch hunts are not from the Middle Ages. Witch hunts are from the early modern period, which is like the 15, 1600s. Okay. Which yeah. you have to kind point. of wrap your, have wrap your head around, but it's really a response to the rise of Protestantism as a almost like a reaction to state power, right? Because Protestant, under state religion, the rise of a new religion is a challenge to state power. Yeah, so it's not even the Middle Ages, it's the early modern period, when at the same time that, the same time period where you start seeing like the Enlightenment and all this other stuff, so we can't even say, oh, it's the Middle Ages, nobody knew any better. I mean, this is a time when societies are growing and becoming more complex in a lot of ways. So, since you just thoroughly owned me for saying medieval, did they have like, with, was there witch uh, concerns about witches in the Middle Ages, or is this an exclusively something more exclusive to this period of time? By far and away, the height of witch hunting is in the early modern period. In the Middle Ages, I believe, I mean, witches are in the Bible, so they would have always thought there was witches. I know there's cases, early cases, where belief in witches was considered heresy. So it was understood oh. that, like, a witch existed we guess because it's in the Bible, but we don't know what it is because it doesn't really specify. So if you're going around accusing like witches of, you know, shooting beams at people and turning people into frogs, that is in and of itself some kind of hearsay. I think in the, as I understand it, and I'm willing to be certainly corrected, as I understand it, witches and witchcraft trials were not as big of a deal in the Middle, middle Ages period at all. I think it's really an early modern phenomenon, which is then properly seen as a reaction to all these other things coming out and not just not just like people were super religious and didn't know any better because again it's the 1600s so it's so, not it's not it's not like you know books are are unknown and everyone lives to the age of 40 and dies of the plague or something 
So one last point that I'd like that I would want to make about the Devils is I really like the fact that, and we talked about this before when we were talking about the movie The Witch, and how there's you know there's a joke about how like uh, teen slasher movies are like sponsored by the Catholic Church because they actually have incredibly uh, regressive like sexual politics, and there's a weird thing that you see in a lot of like supernatural horror movies where they end up sort of uh, endorsing the view that like witchcraft and like devil craft and worshiping the devil are actually real things that will really cause you to die horrifically. And therefore like, in essence, the official church view becomes like sanctioned, you know? Right. Cause I believe in the, in the exorcist, the movie, doesn't she get possessed by using a Ouija board? That's funny. I don't remember that. And this film very explicitly takes the view that in fact witchcraft is not real and that this whole uh, charade of witchcraft and witchcraft trials was just a tool through which to oppress people and reinforce church and state power. The other thing that cracks me up about witch hysteria or demon possession hysteria like this is someone would raise the point of like, why are there so many witches here? Like, like it's like lousy with witches. You like, you know, you can't swing a dead cat without finding a hundred witches like perched outside everyone's doors. And then the response was that, Oh, cause we're so holy here that the devil sent like extra super number of witches to really, to really attack us. So my last thought on the devils and you know, what's weird. Do you know what Roger Ebert gave this movie when it came out? Uh, I do. He, I think gave it zero stars and he hated it and thought it was complete garbage. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know if at the time it was because it, there was so much like the content of it, because a lot of, let's call them things you don't see every day happen in this movie. I don't know if that was part of it. Um, I think he also found its critique of church of like the hypocritical church of being sort of like obvious and which is true. But I think the way that this movie presents it is what gives it its power. And the fact that it is historical. Yeah. And the fact that this is like in the broad strokes is something that actually happened. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really good movie. We talked about the set design, um, the character design or like costume design is like amazing, like amazing. And uh, there's a lot of really impressive images, like the framing. Um, there's like a frame within a frame within a frame. I mean, technically, there's a lot of great stuff in here. Like there are parts of this that as I was watching this, I was trying to like take screenshots of like the really great um, frames. Yeah, you know. When you like of how absurdly sort of like, you know, sleazy. Bach, to, it's a Bachnalian. Yeah. Dionysian. Uh, of the how content some, area is. It's it's like shot. actually like a very meticulously, like beautifully constructed film. Yeah. So I like I said, I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Uh, so I would recommend it as long as you're not turned off by the outrageous content. Which you know some people might not be into that, but if that if that kind of stuff doesn't bother you, I I would say it's actually a really amazing film. I agree. This is a great film. It's streaming on Criterion Channel, and I know it shows up on Shutter, the horror streaming service, at some point. So you know, I guess I have not seen like the severely edited versions, but I would say watch it in you know whatever version you can find, and it's worth it anyway. And hopefully someday we'll get like a legitimate full uncut release, which apparently exists in the form of a print that occasionally gets screened at like festivals, but has yet to be released. 
in any home video format. So, so in the meantime, totally up to the discretion of some studio executive decides one day that they should do it, then they can release it. And, and right now they don't care. Yeah. Because why would they? It's a it's a obscure like controversial movie from 1971. So I'm sure they're not. Right. They're not like chomping at the bit to try to get this thing out there. So maybe someday Warner Brothers will hook us up with the full version. But until then, you can a few different places you can find it, and it's uh, worth watching wherever whatever version of it you see, can see. I would say. Well, that was another delicious and devilish episode of everyone's favorite uh, bacchanalia of physical excess army of crime the podcast if you enjoyed this episode of this podcast you can leave us a review in apple podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts and if you want to tell us that we're dum-dums or if you want to just uh, let us know what you thought of this, or if you are also a fan of the Devils, you can find us on Twitter at Matt is at, at Army of Crime, and I'm at Dustin four 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 four. Find more information about this episode or about any of the other things that we talk about on this show. You can go to our website at armyofcrime.com, where we post links to all of our topics, and you can also leave a comment there. Remember, kids. Satan is ever ready to seduce us with sensual delights. I am largely indifferent to most sports.